everyone, and welcome back to the Football Outsiders Fantasy Show, part of Football Outsiders' broader schedule up on twitch.tv slash fboutsiders. We're every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Aaron and Mike are every Thursday as part of the FO Radio Hour on Twitch, also part of the Football Outsiders Podcast Network. Check us out at our many spots. I'm your host, Scott Spratt, and I'm joined today by Football Outsiders' own Derek Klassen, who we're happy to have with us because we're going to be talking a lot about some quarterbacks and other passing and receiving efficiency stats and splits which will be really interesting but I'm also glad to have Derek here because we're going to start off today's show with a little bit of news some big one from yesterday with fantasy implications with Carson Wentz injuring his foot so let's get started there Derek I think the like the big question everyone has here is like what are they going to do without him behind him Jacoby Brissett is now down with the Dolphins so their roster is a little bit unproven with guys like Jacob Eason Sam Ellinger uh, they bring in Brett Hundley, but still, like a lot of these guys are inexperienced. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on what you think. Uh, maybe I guess suppose Eason is the one that's probably the primary starter. What do you think of him as a as a player? One on his own merits to be a fantasy player, and what he can do for the talent around him. I mean, flatly, I think the the Colts are kind of screwed. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that's any sort of new take. I think everyone at this point probably believes that. Sure. Um, Personally, I wasn't very big on Eason. Um, I, I know some people were because, you know, he was former five-star um, at Georgia. Um, he transferred, uh, went to Washington, had a decent season at Washington. But to me, he was mostly just kind of the prototypical big, like six foot four, six foot five, has a strong arm, mm-hmm. isn't the dumbest guy out there. I don't think he's like particularly sharp, but I think he can at least maybe get over the threshold. But to me, I don't think he's a particularly interesting prospect. And I think what makes him really troublesome to me is that at least when I charted him in college, he was really bad over the like 11 to 15 yard range, which to me, that's Mm. like, that's like the money zone in the NFL. Like you you have to be able to throw that well to be a good NFL quarterback. Um, And Eason was just really bad at it, whether that was off, uh, you know, play action shots, whether he was just pure drop back, whatever. It, It just seemed like he wasn't very comfortable throwing to that area of the field. To me, it's because I just don't think he has very natural touch. And I think with a lot of, you know, like leading routes um, where he has to really hit guys in stride um, and, and, and open up yards after catch opportunities, I don't think he was very good at that to that range. So that's why I kind of struggled to see him being a good NFL starter. Um, the caveat to that is he actually was surprisingly really good in like the short range, um, you know, the one to five yard area and stuff like that. They did play a lot of empty and he was pretty good at that. So I, I trust hmm. Frank Reich to be able to, come up with a good empty game plan if that's what they want to do if that's what they want to do to make him comfortable that's probably best for Paris Campbell as for everybody else I'm not too (laughs) optimistic (laughs) well and the funny thing is I guess the fantasy player that I've been most worried about relative to sort of his draft position right now is Naeem Hines the receiving back because it really felt like Philip Rivers game was all about checking down to the running back when appropriate and so Hines ended up with what like 63 catches last season even though he wasn't the primary runner for the team. So it was like, this was maybe the player that was most damaged by the switch going to Carson Wentz, who's more of a downfield, just chucker. Um, but I'm wondering maybe in the short term, maybe Hines has a little bit of a, a reprieve here and, and could be effective. But I mean, the bigger issue is just if, if Easton's not going to be an effective passer, then having good quarterback play is the best way to create new rushing attempts for a team because they can build leads and then run the ball extra in second halves. So maybe this could be damaging to even Jonathan Taylor to a little bit, although we don't really have it projecting that way. Derek, is it true that Eason is really more of a traditional pocket passer, not somebody that's going to be running at all? 
Yeah, I think he did show at Washington that he was mobile enough to escape the pocket at times when he needed to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like a younger Matt Ryan could kind of get out of the pocket and do stuff. Not that he was ever going to run, but he could at least free himself up enough to make throws. That's kind of along the lines of what Easton is. I think he can get outside the pocket enough, but he's not going to be the guy who's you know, breaking yeah. off 15, 20 yard runs. He's not going to be the guy who they want to design a whole lot of stuff to. So I think you're absolutely right. He's a guy who's pretty strictly a pocket passer. So, I mean, it seems like the other quarterbacks on the Colts roster behind Wentz then Sam Ellinger and Brett Hundley would honestly be the better fantasy choices that they were selected because they both have a little bit of like dual threat nature to their game. So important from a fantasy perspective, but speaking of just Eason in the short term, like, do you think that either Paris Campbell or Michael Pittman like changes dramatically um, in, in their prospects because of this? I mean, neither one of them was going as like a top 40 type of wide receiver, but are you just kind of out on them entirely now with the, the short-term switch to a backup quarterback? I would say Pittman more so I'm out on than Campbell. Um, like I mentioned, I think if Eason's, you know, best area of the field is still in the one to five where he can kind of just work pre-snap and hit someone immediately off the top of his drop, play out of empty if that's what the Colts are going to want to do with him that's probably where Paris Campbell is going to be best in that yeah. short yard range where he can um, get a lot of you know just shallow crossers maybe quick slants hitches just quick stuff to get him the ball in his hands um, even a lot of screens Jacob Eason was kind of okay at that that's a stupid thing to say but there are some quarterbacks who are very bad at throwing screens <laughs> no um, Jacob I mean, Eason was as okay a former <laughs> Jimmy Clausen watcher for the Panthers right. I can assure you not every quarterback can change the velocity of his passes <laughs> right so Eason can at least do that and so I, I can envision a world where this is actually all okay for Paris Campbell um, if they end up using him a lot of the ways they use him as a rookie where, where he was more of just like a gadget guy not really getting down the field so yeah I could maybe be okay with him. Pittman, I have a lot more questions, and I think it would require Jacob Easton to just flatly be a better player than I think he is for Pittman to be okay in this situation. Well, I mean, honestly, that seems like the right splits for Easton to have because at least based on a report I'm seeing on ESPN as we're starting the show, it sounds like Quentin Nelson suffered a foot injury as well. Oh, and God. could be out for <laughs> some similar to Carson Wentz period of time, in which case – yeah, like I'm really wondering, did Carson Wentz, like, is he the one that's cursed? It wasn't the Eagles the last two years. It's like, did Wentz, like, anger some kind of, like, witch disguised as a prom date or something? And now it's just everywhere he goes. It's just his team is falling apart around him. But he, he gave up everything for that 2017 regular season. For, for all that, uh, the volatility <laughs> he got on case, third downs yeah. and in the red zone, he gave it all up for that one year. Yeah, so, I mean – I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point from, from a fantasy perspective, from a quarterback perspective, Eason, you're not going to want, and I don't think you're going to want Wentz now. I mean, Wentz was already a question mark, not somebody that really brings a lot to the table as a runner from a fantasy perspective, already had the questions about last year's bad performance and things are just kind of, you know, falling apart a little bit, unfortunately for, for the, the Colts, but uh, you know, we'll see, maybe things will turn around. Maybe they'll get back on the field a little bit quicker. Maybe Quentin Nelson's injury isn't as serious as I, suspect based on the initial reports that I'm reading. Well, ugh, so I mean, tough way to start the show, Derek, but I mean, we're having you on too to talk about some positive things as well, but um, really we're talking about passing efficiency and rush, uh, receiving efficiency stats and splits. These are coming out of the new reports that you can find up on footballoutsiders.com, part of FO plus. So please subscribe to that, but you can do all kinds of interesting queries uh, doing splits, both for different timeframes, looking at different stats on, on certain periods of times and we'll give you some examples today that are kind of bringing up interesting topics. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can come up with some more positive things to talk about, Derek. 
I want to get things started with a player that honestly we've talked about a lot when I've had you on your scouting background, I think has been very helpful with a player that at least based on my initial read of things as a non-scout, I didn't expect Justin Herbert to be nearly as successful as he was in his rookie season, but was tremendous. And if you kind of expect a typical year one to year two bump for a quarterback as somebody that could really be a top five fantasy quarterback this year, but using that new passing efficiency tool and looking at this, one interesting note is that Justin Herbert had an unusually high 0.35 passing fantasy points per pressured drop back. He was the only quarterback above 40% completion percentage on his pressure throws, the only like regular starter among those guys. And it's kind of up there in the Russell Wilson, Matt Ryan, Patrick Mahomes, Matthew Stafford range. Uh, you know, those are the only guys above 0.30 fantasy points per pressure drop back. It kind of paints a picture that Herbert might be like the rare rookie that can process the field the way that these you know, most talented quarterbacks are. But my question for you, Derek, is do you feel that way? Does this kind of give you confidence in him? Or are you worried that this may be like a non-sticky stat that maybe could say that Herbert may be due for some regression this year? So it's probably unlikely that he's this good every single year. Um, You know, if you look back at like historical data, really the only guy that is like consistently top three or five um, in terms of like, you know, DVOA against pressure is Patrick Mahomes. And like, Justin Herbert is probably not that. Um, But I do think Justin Herbert has all the tools to consistently be a guy who is good under pressure. For one, um, back when I charged him when he was coming out of college, Justin Herbert was an incomplete prospect. I I think especially in structure, partly because of Oregon structure was so terrible, but he was really good out of structure actually. And when pressured, he had the second highest um, adjusted accuracy for me out of pressure only behind or while he was pressured only behind Joe Burrow, which is, that's pretty good company to be in, in that class. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so I, I also think even if you just look at his tools, he has all the tools to deal with pressure. One, he's obviously very tall, so he's never going to have a problem. If he has, you know, a defensive lineman in his lap, he's always going to be able to comfortably throw over them, which I think is a problem. A lot of the shorter quarterbacks coming into the NFL um, or even in the NFL kind of yeah. had issues with. That's a good point. Um, he's obviously athletic enough to just get outside of the pocket if he needs to. Um, he can run if he needs to. So he doesn't always, he, if he gets outside of the pocket, he doesn't feel like he's boxed into having to throw or throw it away. He can just run if he wants to. So that kind of, I think, helps limit the mistakes he's going to make outside the pocket because he knows he just has another option available to him. Um, obviously, his arm is fantastic. So I feel like he just checks every box for being able to play under pressure. Um, and just as we saw, it kind of both in college and in his rookie year, it kind of just seems like he, he does thrive, like you said, in processing the field when when, when stuff starts to hit the fan, when stuff starts to really break down, it seems like he doesn't really lose his cool. It seems like he kind of has a plan for himself. And I probably expect that to be something he continues. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really encouraging. And kind of the other reason that I'm encouraged is this, I wonder if there's going to be fewer pressure dropbacks this season. Like obviously mm-hmm. the chargers have done a lot to try to improve their pass protection. They bring in another former Packer and Corey Lindsley. They draft a, a pass protector in the first round. So I think, even if Herbert's success on pressure dropbacks was a little maybe unsustainable, by switching some of those over to non-pressure dropbacks, I think you can fairly expect that he's going to have similar efficiency on those uh, just because they're sort of easier dropbacks to make decisions and make throws, hit your open targets, et cetera. So I think and, a lot of was, reasons to be optimistic there. And he was good for a rookie on like traditional type of stuff. I think he oh, was like, time. 
if I remember correctly, he was like slightly above average in DVOA for like non-pressure dropbacks, which is obviously not sexy, but when you're a rookie in a COVID year, I mean, that's like pretty dang good. It's extremely um, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, it, you know, like I said, maybe the pressured stuff does drop down a little bit, but I think he's still going to be good there. But like you mentioned, the non-pressured stuff, he's going to have more of those opportunities. And if we assume that he can get a little bit better just from natural year one to year two progression, he should be pretty good on non-pressured stuff too. Nice. So, I mean, I found it really interesting that you called out Joe Burrow as the one guy that was ahead of him from a pressure perspective as a scouting exercise in college, because he actually performed much worse um, from a pressure drop back perspective last year as a rookie. Granted, obviously he had a limited season because of his, his injury, but 0.05 passing fantasy points per pressure drop back. Only Drew Locke, Carson Wentz, and Gardner Minshew were worse among regular starters and it put him with a 21.4% completion percentage with pressure, which was the second worst among regular starters. So is this a blip? Is it related to sample size? Is it something that really you should just kind of expect from rookies and Burrow can, can step forward from this? Or could there maybe be some physical limitations that could be an issue here or maybe some team building issues that could be a problem here for Burrow? I mean, I think it's really all of it. I think for one, you know, Burrow was fantastic out of, you know, outside the pocket and under pressure in college, but mm-hmm. he also had a ton of help in college, obviously. And also like the, the bar for what you need to be physically in college to do those things is a little bit lower in the NFL yeah. or it, it's higher in the NFL. I mean, right. it's lower in college. So I think that does hurt Burrow a little bit. What I would also say is like the Bengals offensive line was just terrible and it's probably not going to be a whole lot better this year. It should be a, a little bit um, better and that might help a little bit, but it was just downright disastrous last year. And they also had this weird conundrum where just in terms of, of processing and like what Burrow is best at, he's really good when he can play quick games. So they did a lot of empty stuff um, because that, I mean, Burrow is just fantastic pre-snap. He's going to kill you every time if he can get that protected that way. The problem is the Bengals offensive line obviously wasn't good enough to protect out of empty consistently, but it was also like what Burrow was best at. So they, they, they ran into this weird thing where, it was actually hard for them to, to block that stuff. And I think that led to a lot of pressures, led to a lot of stuff where Burrow couldn't really get out of it. So I do expect him to be a little bit better. But like you mentioned with his physical limitations, he's probably never going to crack that like Herbert, you, you know, like what Herbert did last year or Mahomes, Stafford, all those guys. Sure. I think if he can just get to, you know, not being disastrous, if he can, you know, hover around league average with that type of stuff and then get better in structure the way that we expect him to, the way that we hope the Bengals have built their roster to be better at. I think that's how Burrow gets better overall as a player. But I mean, you figure if, if Burrow's arm strength is kind of the number one limitation that he has relative to somebody like Herbert, like that may not be a big deal with pressure, right? Cause you're just trying to kind of get rid of the ball, find a shallower open target. But like, is Jamar chase going to be that for him? Or is like, is this a situation where Pene Sewell would have just been a much better fit for the Bengals for kind of helping Burrow with what he's specifically trying to deal with here? I, I think Sewell was the better pick. I, I said this all throughout draft season that I think, you know, people mentioned like, oh, well, they already have Jonah Williams. But it's like, yeah, but if you can get two of the best young bookends mm. in the entire league, yeah. and Sewell was, you know, one of the best tackle prospects I think we've seen in, in a very long time. Certainly, you know, he might be the best since I've ever started doing this in like 2013, 2014. So I think he, he should have been the lock to that pick. Chase is obviously a fantastic player. He's going to help in some ways. But to me, I don't think they're going to get the full value out of what Chase provides until the offensive line is sorted out. And I'm not very confident that what they did this offseason at the offensive line is going to get them sorted out. Hmm. 
Well, speaking of really bad offensive lines, let's head over to Carson Wentz's old team in the Eagles, where Jalen Hurts, I think, is interesting from a number of perspectives. I think everybody in fantasy has a lot of excitement about him because of what he did as a runner in limited time as a starter last season. But looking at his passing numbers, I've kind of been getting a little bit more and more scared of him as a prospect for fantasy purposes. One number that really jumped out to me using the passing efficiency tool was 0.51 passing fantasy points per drop back in the red zone. That's the worst among regular starters. He had 35 red zone dropbacks. So even as a limited time starter, somewhere he was spending enough time, I think, to have a pretty decent sample. He had a 20% completion percentage down there. That was uh, basically less than half of everybody else that mattered, except for new Panthers legend, Sam Darnold. So it's like, it looks really bleak over what is still a small sample, but I'm kind of hearkening back to some things I think you've said, Derek, where it's like Hertz's arm could be a real problem and maybe limits him to being a between the twenties type of quarterback. Like, is that what we're looking at here? Is, is Hertz going to be Kyle Orton, but with better wheels? <laughs> uh, that, that's certainly one way to put it. I do think the, the arm, I, I think you can overcome arm strength issues in the red zone. Um, you know, we've obviously seen it with some more veteran guys. Like if you're just a really sharp processor and you can see things very quickly, get the ball out on, on the very top of your drop, um, place the ball with great touch, all those mm-hmm. sorts of things you can overcome, maybe not having the strongest arm to fit those windows. The problem is I, I really don't see the world in which Hertz has those things. I, I think Hertz is consistently like a, a tick late on a lot of the things that he does. Um, I think he kind of struggles to be a full field processor. I don't really trust how he can go, you know, one to two to three. I think he's a guy who's a lot of like one to check down or like one to run that sort of stuff. So I I kind of, he would have to take a really big leap in my opinion, as a processor to really overcome some of his arm limitations in the red zone. Um, That's always possible. You know, Hertz did make great strides as a passer consistently in college. So it's not, you know, it's not completely unfounded that he could maybe do that in the NFL, but you know, it's just a lot harder to do that in the NFL. And I think you sure. would have to take such a big jump that even if he can get there, he probably isn't going to be there this year. And, you know, truthfully, yeah. he probably wouldn't even get the opportunity to do it in year three. Um, you know, if, if this year doesn't go as well as, as maybe he's hoping. Yeah, that may be fair. Now, one thing that does kind of stick out to me is sort of as the transition has happened in the NFL to more dual threat type quarterbacks are getting more and more popular. I've kind of been developing a theory that, the better runner you are, the, the like less steep the learning curve is from a college to NFL perspective. Because again, he like, even if Hertz isn't a great processor, he can look one, maybe look two. And if it's not there, he can run. And I wonder if that actually might also be a good fit for the Eagles for, you know, their aging offensive line, if they're dealing with more injuries. Over the second half of last season, like he had a significantly lower sack rate than Carson Wentz did. And I think it's just, it kind of speaks to his, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like a Russell Wilson thing almost, like where the Seahawks have traditionally had a very bad pass-protecting line, maybe partially Russell Wilson's fault. But Wilson has also been able to sort of escape, extend plays, and then run too. And it, could that be something that Hurts does that maybe makes him a better fit for the Eagles, even if his upside as a player isn't like a top 10 type of talent? I, I mean, I think it's possible. Like, I think to your point, I, I'm not entirely sure that being able to run necessarily – changes how steep the learning curve is in the NFL as a passer but it obviously gives you like a cushion where you, mm-hmm. you I think it raises your floor obviously you know we've said this just with you know just through the lens of fantasy points but I think even just in terms of I think if a guy can run it's going to give you all these tools to where a coach thinks okay well if he can already do this we're gonna want to give him the time to maybe learn to be a passer because then if he can do both well then wow maybe he's a, a top 12 to 10 quarterback 
again, I'm not entirely confident that Jalen yeah. Hurts is, is going to be the guy that ever develops to that. But I do think, um, you know, to your point, I think the fact that he is such a good runner, probably, you know, one of the top three to five at the position in the NFL right now, I think that gives him, you know, the coaching staff might be willing to think, okay, if he can already do this, maybe we do want to try to, to stick this out in the long term. So I missed earlier on Twitch, useful title said, on the plus side, the Colts still play in the AFC South, talking about you know, their ability <laughs> to survive not having Carson Wentz. And I, I would kind of tie that back in here, which is like at least the Eagles and Hurts play in the NFC East. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know, like, does that division sort of change your opinion about the rope that he might get as, as a starter? Like, you know, the Cowboys might be a lot better this year. I mean, they, they almost definitely will if Prescott can stay healthy. Washington, I mean, if they get real quarterback play, uh, whether that be from Fitzpatrick or Heineke or whoever, mm-hmm. their defense is, is super scary. Like, are the I don't know, are the Eagles going to be in the mix if they're going to be seven and ten, or or what do you think about the division as an impact here on you know his prospects or ability to hang on to this job all season? So the the thing about that division is, yeah, I mean, you already mentioned Washington has a great defense. I think the Giants have a great defense, and they might end up being uh, better this year than they were last year. Hmm. whether the Giants or the Washington offense is, is good enough for that to matter, I don't know. But I do think that causes a particular problem for Hertz, where he, he might run into these defenses that, um, you know, I think do, do a really good job of generating pressure and he's going to have to play outside the pocket a lot. Granted, he can get there, but it, it's going to be a lot of pressure that he's going to have to deal with. And then Dallas is, is kind of the opposite where the Dallas defense isn't very good, but that Cowboys offense is probably going to be top five in the NFL. And I don't know if Jalen Hurts is really the guy that can, you know, outgun them. Um, he probably isn't. So I think it's probably a, a pretty tough division with respect to him, even if it's not like any of those teams are going to be 13 win teams or whatever. Sure. And then bringing up the Giants, as you did, that kind of hits on my next point where I want to talk about both Daniel Jones, Aaron and Derek Carr. So Daniel Jones last year, 1.16 fantasy points per deep attempt. That was the fourth highest in football behind Deshaun Watson, Derek Carr, and Aaron Rodgers. A pretty amazing company. But he was just 11th in 2019 at 0.84. Meanwhile, Derek Carr, 1.35 fantasy points per deep attempt last year. That was second best, but 0.78 in 2019 was 13th. So guys that were outside the top 10 that jumped in the top five, Maybe not altogether surprising. I mean, quarterbacks aren't taking a ton of deep shots every year, but I wanted to get your thoughts for both quarterbacks. So whether is this kind of part of their natural skill set that maybe we're just seeing as newer pieces are being brought to the team and, and Daniel Jones's case in particular, the development happens, or is this kind of a blip and it's going to be a problem for them if they're not able to kind of meet that really high standard from last year going forward? I think with Jones, it's possible that he – can kind of keep doing this at least next year um just because i think the way that they constructed the roster um that wide receiver core is very geared toward doing this obviously he had a wonderful connection with darius slayton um kenny galladay is going to be really good down the field i mean that dude is a a pterodactyl the way that he is built (laughs) (laughs) i mean like if you can get it in his general vicinity down the field i think you know he's probably going to catch it more often than not those pterodactyls aren't great separators though is what i've I've heard so that's that's true but daniel jones is also the type where he's going to be like oh a 50 50 ball that's fine i'll just throw that (laughs) he doesn't really care if you're if you've separated or not um and then they also are taking a swing on john ross who Obviously, things haven't really worked out for him, but if they do, he's obviously a guy who can get down the field. So I think they've constructed this roster for him to continually being good down the field, you know, and so I think there's a decent chance he can keep doing it. Derek Carr, I think, is in a little bit trickier of a spot. Hopefully, 
Henry Ruggs can be a little bit better, be a little bit more productive. That's what everyone is hoping for, for Derek yeah. Carr to continue um, being a good down the field passer. Um, and then basically they, they swapped out um, Nelson Aguilar for, I believe John Brown, who John, John Brown. Brown is yep. a, a pretty good, um, he can be a good down the field guy. He has been before that kind of was less true last year when the bills brought in um, Stephon Diggs and stuff, just because Diggs is obviously a better player. He's going to be better at that. Um, but I think John Brown could at least, kind of be as good as Aguilar was at that last year. Aguilar obviously had like basically a career year. Um, who knows if John Brown can be quite that good, but um, you know, to kind of round out my point, I, I would be feel pretty good about Daniel Jones getting close ish to that again. Derek Carr is a little bit more of a coin flip to me. Yeah. Um, especially cause I think just their receiving core as a whole is maybe a little, I, I'm not as high on them um, yeah. as some others seem to be. And I mean, also for Carr, I mean, the, the offensive line potentially could step a, right. take a major step back. And I didn't actually look up stats on this, but I'm, I'm, I would suspect that had a big deal with, with his ability to go deep so much was having that great pass protection last season. Um, Absolutely. But let's dig a little bit more into Daniel Jones. I mean, you mentioned some of the changing um, players and <laughs> I, I swear this is kind of like unfortunate, but this is what happens when you're, when you're doing shows during uh, camp time. But Kenny Dalladay also apparently left practice with an injury. Unclear what that is right in here. I think so. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> so obviously he missed all of last season. So we need that. But with Jones, it's so I guess interesting, maybe unfortunate. I don't know what the right word is, but like Jones is is like the number one dropper of the football at the position. Well, like he and Taysom Hill, right? So like he's always getting sacked. He's always fumbling. But his best strength is on is on deep throws. Is like is that a sustainable type of like duality for a quarterback in the league, or is like is the first problem going to be the thing that sabotages Jones's efforts to ever become a successful quarterback? So I think if he, if he had a better mental trigger in terms of not throwing as many interceptions, like if fumbles were the only problem that he had, yeah, it could maybe be okay, but he just turns the ball over a lot generally, both with yes. the fumbles and with the interceptions. And honestly, I don't really see how he ever fixes his sack or fumble problem. Cause he's been like this forever. He was like this in college. He's been like this for as long as he's been in the NFL. I mean, he just had, he has like object permanence in the pocket. Like he doesn't, he has no idea where pass rushers are most of the time. Um, and he can only really deal with them once they already have a hand on him. And that's not really a good starting point to try to deal with pass rushers. So I think he's probably always going to be this kind of volatile, kind of in the same way that like Jameis Winston can be. Um, I think they're kind of similar players in that regard. So, hmm. well, let's let's shift to talking about a quarterback with a little bit more age on him than those guys, and Ben Roethlisberger. And it does seem like the fantasy community has more or less given up on Roethlisberger as being an effective starter. This is actually something that's come up a lot on the FO Radio Hour with Aaron and Mike, where Football Outsiders in general has been more optimistic about the Steelers as a team in general. But I'm pretty optimistic about them as like a fantasy squad, too, relative to the ADP and other expectations in the league. And part of that, I think, comes out of some of the research that I'm doing here, where obviously the Steelers started off really great last year. They were undefeated for something like 10 or 11 weeks, but just 0.35 passing fantasy points per drop back from weeks 12 on and through the playoffs. That was just 20th best among regular starters behind guys like Mitchell Trubisky, Drew Locke, and Andy Dalton. So, I mean, obviously not where you want to be, not a successful fantasy player. But something interesting, over that same stretch of time, Roethlisberger had a 50.2% success percentage. That was 10th best ahead of guys like Matthew Stafford, Ryan Tannehill, and Russell Wilson. So I'm curious if there may be a little bit of a dissonance here between what we saw from a fantasy perspective and what Roethlisberger was like in real life in terms of keeping his Steelers ahead of the sticks 
you know, maybe not always taking shots down the field, but making good decisions. And sometimes it spiraled like with multiple turnover games and stuff, but more or less was still an effective player in the second half by that measurement. What do you make of Roethlisberger and what that might mean for the other Steelers this year? You know, I think it's possible that they could be a little bit better because kind of to your point, um, I think Roethlisberger actually did do a good job of, you know, like keeping them ahead of the sticks. I think he's still pretty good pre-snap. You know, he's obviously been in the league for, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever. Um, I think he generally has gotten better with age at making decisions and stuff like that. So I do think he was good at the, you know, kind of raising the floor of the offense part. It's just the problem is that was all that he could do. And that was yeah. really all that the rest of the Steelers offense could do. Cause it's not like their offensive line was very good and it's probably not going to be very good again this year. So I think a lot of their potential, you know, getting better is going to have to do with, you know, they had the, I think the team tweeted out like Roethlisberger had lost like, a, you know, 15 pounds or whatever. <laughs> Best shape it's, of his life, Derek. Don't right. Deny all it. that stuff. So it, that like, that has to be real and he, his arm has to actually be better and he has to be more willing to press the ball down the field. Cause I think their players are good enough to do that. I think, you know, Claypool and Washington in particular can be good guys down the field. So I think he just has to give them more chances, give them more explosives. If I remember correctly, they're like, bottom like six or seven in explosive plays down the field, which is, I think it's like 15 or 20 yards um, for passing plays. So I think they really just have to raise the bar there. Cause like, you know, mentioned with success rate, if they can stay in that eight to 12 range, that's a pretty good spot to be in. They really just need to find the explosives. Yeah. It's interesting because Roethlisberger went from being like pretty much always one of the leaders in average depth of target to mm-hmm. the, the other end of the spectrum last year. And I think, Everybody is assuming that was 100% a result of him losing his arm because of the injuries and everything else. But I wonder how much of it might have been choice. You know, it's, that's a way to avoid taking hits. Um, and, and Roethlisberger took way fewer sacks last year than he ever did. The Steelers are playing with this great defense that doesn't need to always push the ball down the field. Um, so, I, you know, I'm curious, you know, Clay, Chase Claypool's entering his second year seems like another hit uh, for their wide receiver drafting um, record. So like it's, is there's a chance that maybe this could get a little bit better if, if this has all been more of a choice than it has been physical limitations. Plus you're coming into the second year coming off the surgery. So, you know, I think there are reasons to be optimistic, um, but I guess we'll just see maybe, maybe a little preseason action. will will tell us some info if, if they let Roethlisberger play at all. Right. All right. Uh, you know, Roethlisberger has been an interesting player from a from a drops perspective too. Deontay Johnson dropped a lot of passes last season, something that I don't necessarily expect will continue this year. But let's talk about some drops and quarterbacks that suffered because of drops last year. And, and Philip, if you can throw that graphic up for us here. Some of the guys near the top of the list, uh, just overall drop percentage, guys like Andy Dalton doesn't really matter from a fantasy perspective. Aaron Rodgers doesn't matter because he's really good. And who cares if, if his receivers are dropping balls? But a player that jumped out to me on this list was Lamar Jackson as being a top seven sufferer of drops last season. And he actually was the, had the highest drop rate on his deep throws specifically at 7.3%. And we've made a lot about Lamar's sort of limitations inability to push the ball down the field inability to get the ball outside the numbers, but seeing a number like this, I'm wondering, is it possible that some of that has been a result of, of really lack of receiving options on the outside and deep? And maybe that's something that could change uh, bringing in guys like Rashad Bateman and other options, uh, Sammy Watkins, another great deep threat. Maybe could that get better for Jackson, or do you think this is really more a physical problem? Uh, I mean, this is a cop-out, but I, I do think it's both. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for one, like his best pass catcher last year was Mark Andrews, who is a good tight end, yes. but for all of his good tight, like, tight end play, he drops a lot of passes. Um, it's really every area of the field. 
Um, so I think that hurts. And really, they just didn't have any ball winners last year. Like, they just didn't have guys who could line up outside. They felt like a true X receiver, and they were going to be able to get the ball in that 10 to 15-yard area, you know, win on a lot of those ISO routes near the boundary. They just didn't have guys who were good at that. So I think it was hard for Lamar to feel confident in a lot of those players because they weren't good at it. And then obviously when he threw them, they, you know, his guys just weren't really good at winning um, those reps. So, and then, you know, at the same time, I do think that is where he struggles. Um, I think Lamar can have issues driving on the ball outside of the numbers that was true in college. And that's been kind of true in the NFL. I don't think it's like completely debilitating to his game. I think he can get to a good enough level where, all of his other tools are still good enough to make him a great player. I mean, obviously we saw it in his MVP campaign where he was good enough at those throws that everything Mm -hmm. else was able to get value. So I think they can get back there again, especially with Rashad Bateman. You know, I thought he was good coming out of college and he's obviously, you know, training camps, training camp clips are one thing, but it seems like he's beating the hell out of one of the best (laughs) cornerback rooms in in the country. So um, I think that seems good. And I think Sammy Watkins is is a really underappreciated player. I think, I think he was really good in Kansas city. It's just, he played such a particular role that he didn't need to be productive. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people kind of forgot about him. And I think people forgot about him too. Cause you know, when he was popping off in Buffalo, he was a guy who was just running nine routes and he, he was just yeah. the best deep receiver in the league. And he's really morphed his game to that's just not what he is anymore. He's kind of like a shorter to intermediate guy who can, who can be good at a lot of different things. He's more of a glue, a glue guy. So I think having him and Bateman now in the lineup is really going to, help Lamar's confidence in what he has on the outside and hopefully get him back to that level where you can just get the competent there. And then all of his other great tools are, you know, make him a a top 10 quarterback again. You know, honestly, I feel like Watkins has been hurt by the fact that he hasn't been a great fantasy player. I know that seems like a silly thing to say, but from just a public awareness perspective, like I think he's been so much more valuable from a real world perspective than from a fantasy perspective, kind of like Mm -hmm. a newer Deshaun Jackson type where Mm -hmm. having, having that kind of volatility and performance it's just not ideal for, you know, a fantasy league where you're trying to perform well every week, you want some consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that could be a really big boon for, for Jackson this season. And can you talk a little bit more about Rashad Bateman? I know he was one of your pre-draft favorites, but given his like strange offense in college, I guess you could say it, like, I'm not sure a lot of people really understand what his game is. So like, is he a, a, a receiver that can stretch the field? Is he going to be working more in the middle of the field, which I guess that's been Jackson's strengths, but you know, we're looking for players that can maybe make Jackson into more this year. Is, is Bateman somebody that can that can help him expand his, you know, his tree? Right. So I think right off the bat, Bateman is going to be a guy who can who can just win a lot of ISO routes on the outside, um, whether that's, you know, slants, go balls, um, comeback routes to, to the sideline and stuff like that. Um, because like the Ravens just didn't, like I said, the Ravens didn't have a guy like that. And I think if you look at um, what he did in college, he ran a lot of slants, glances, and go balls. And like you mentioned, the offense, it's really just like a fake offense. I hate watching it. I hate charting it. Um, and I think it, it really put like a weird, um, you know, it put like a weird um, just tint over what Bateman's game is. Cause I think he's just so much more capable of what the offense wanted him to do. I think he's just such a fantastic route runner. I think he's really explosive. Um, and so I think he's going to be really good. I think he can be a guy who can be like a true X for them. Um, you know, obviously he's not going to be, um, you know, Julio Jones right out of year one. But I think just having a guy who feels like a true X on the outside is something that Baltimore just didn't have last year. And I think that alone provides a lot of value, whether or not he's a 1500 yard receiver right away. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough for anybody to be a really great fantasy option on that team that's so run focused and with Lamar. I mean, obviously Lamar is great, but I mean, a receiver for him. But it also, it kind of reminds me, you remember when Georgia Tech was just like running triple option every year and then they would randomly have like Calvin Johnson and Demarius Thomas. Exactly. Graduating. <laughs> and then you're like, huh, like these guys had 20 catches last year. And then like, oh, wait, he's the greatest receiver ever. It's just like, sometimes those guys get put in these really weird situations. And it, I have like a stinky suspicion that Bateman could be a really, really good receiver. And, you know, guys like you know it, but I think people playing fantasy that are a little bit more casual about it, they may have no idea who Rashad Bateman is. Like he wasn't lighting up scoreboards in the SEC last year. You know what I mean? Exactly. I I mean, I could totally see a scenario where he only maybe has 700, 750 yards, but it's incredibly efficient. And it just happens to be that they're just not throwing all that much. And they finally have other options to where he doesn't need to be, you know, the only guy that they throw, throw to that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, I think one more quarterback thing, and then we'll get to some receivers. But, Philip, if you could put up the sack splits graphic here. We've actually talked about a number of these guys before. Using that passing efficiency tool, I was looking at guys, their sack rates from the first half of last season to the second half. Uh, we talked about, you know, Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts, how Hurts took a, or fewer sacks in the second half than Wentz did. Maybe a good sign for his fit with the Eagles. Uh, we talked about Daniel Jones. Not a good sign to me that his, his sack rate went up in the second half. You're kind of looking for a progression from a decision-making standpoint that we're not getting. But I want to talk about Taysom Hill with you because I don't think this is really a part of his game that people think about very much, but Hill is taking a lot of first-team reps right now. It's looking more and more realistic that Hill could be the starter for the Saints. And like if he is, he has incredible fantasy potential as a dual-threat guy, but also a guy that runs in a lot of touchdowns near the goal line. I mean, he could be a top-five fantasy quarterback if he were playing every week. But that 10.6% sack rate over the second half of the season when he was a starter for several games, I would say very alarming. Do you think that's something that can doom his chances to be not even a long-term starter, but like a starter for a full season for the Saints this year when they maybe don't have a a hugely better option? I would say probably, um, just because I think even if you look at what they were able to do when he was on the field, obviously he he was fairly productive. Um, but they limited a lot of what they did to where they were kind of limiting his passing options, putting in a lot more max protect type of stuff where they were just like, you're going to hold on to the ball. You're going to throw it, you know, 16 plus yards down the field. And we're going to try to create explosives with you because we don't necessarily trust you to, to really have like a full drop back game. So I kind of don't, I don't really see how Taysom Hill suddenly becomes like a great drop back passer. I mean, he's like 30 years old. I think we would have seen it by now. Um, so I, I think this like, you know, 10 ish sack rate is probably something that if he played a full season, just with the nature of the way that the offense has to function with him in there and his own deficiencies, I think that's probably something that would continue to, to, to stick around. I mean, you hate that. I mean, for obviously that's not good for the saints offense in general, but right. that, that can't be a good thing for his ability to stay healthy too, which would also be a concern right. if, he, if he won the job, um, given that Hill would be a better fantasy option because of the running. But given those concerns and, and all the concerns that surround Jameis Winston, would, would you take a shot on either of those guys from a fantasy perspective this year? I mean, they're both going very late in drafts right now. So if you think either one could even have a chance to be a top 10 quarterback from fantasy perspective, they would be really good value. But is there either of them or, or maybe both or neither that you would take a, a shot on for fantasy this year? You know, if I had to take one, it, it would be Winston. 
um, just because I've always kind of been a little bit of a believer in Winston. Um, and I know the interception numbers are, are absurd <laughs> and really not anything that like yeah. any other competent quarterback in the modern era has, is doing. Um, but I, I legitimately believe that there is like some sort of hidden value in the, in the way that Jameis plays. And I think with another year in Peyton's system, I actually kind of trust that he could be a competent um, starter again. Whether or not that's going to, you know, turn him into a top 10, top eight fantasy quarterback, I don't know. Um, but I do think that there is a, a pretty legitimate path for him to be like a good enough starter for the Saints to be um, a competitive and good team again. So if I had to, to flip the coin on one of them, I think it would be Winston. Okay, one more pressure guy to talk about, Sam Darnold. The splits weren't really necessary. He suffered from sacks all last year and kind of throughout his Jets tenure under Adam Gase, they just never really had the great pass protection that he wanted. And so I think the people that believed in Darnold were always eager to see him with another team where maybe he would be in better circumstances. But as a Panthers fan, I hate to say, I'm not sure the Panthers are really that spot. Like they have a lot of questions on the offensive line too. And even though they've got a, we think a pretty good offensive coordinator and they've got great skill talent, do you think the Panthers really offer more from sort of a stability standpoint, pass protection otherwise than even the Jets did? They might be a little bit. It's funny because they might be a little bit better than what the Jets were last year in terms of protection, but I don't think they're going to be better than what the Jets are this year in terms of protection. So, yeah. so it actually, that's pretty unfortunate <laughs> for Sam Darnold. The timing um, because, could, could not have been worse. Right. Cause I mean, the Jets, like they, they drafted a guard in the first round, they signed Morgan Moses. Um, they obviously have Makai Becton who looks like one of the best um, young left tackles in the league. So it's kind of unfortunate that, that Darnold is leaving all of that. Um, but I don't really think that this Panthers offensive line is, is going to do a whole lot for him. It might be slightly better than the disaster that the Jets were. But, I mean, they're going to be starting Cam Irving at left tackle probably, oh, which yeah. is not particularly inspiring to me. They're starting Pat Alflin, who is maybe more maligned than he deserves, but is also still not very good. Um, the only guy I really like fully trust on that offensive line is Taylor Moten. Everybody else, I think, at this point is kind of – you're really betting that they can have like a career year or something. So um, I think that um, if Sam Darnold is going to be good, it's probably going to take another year of building that offensive line. And I, I kind of struggle to see how this yeah. offensive line is really good for him. I mean, if the plan is to get a high draft pick for a quarterback next year, I think the Panthers they're in a good spot really then. Good yes. <laughs> As I have to tell you, Derek, this is neither here nor there from a fantasy perspective, but I just see all of the, the, the camp updates and I know that they're not wearing pads and this doesn't really mean much, but like every, everyday story is like, Oh, Shaq Thompson had an amazing interception. Oh, JC Horn, great interception in camp today. I'm like, uh, is Sam Darnold just throwing interceptions every five minutes? And I think the answer is yes. Probably. Yeah, I hate it. I hate, hate to see it. Uh, so before I get too depressed with that, let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the receivers that we see with interesting splits. Again, from a new FO Plus tool on footballoutsiders.com. Please check that out. I think you'll really enjoy what you can do there. Uh, and Philip, put up the yards after contact graphic here this is actually receiving but looking at running back receivers and i think this list is going to be a lot of usual suspects um, uh, mccaffrey's not on it because he was injured so much last year but guys like jonathan taylor dalvin cook alvin Kamara, clyde edwards Hilaire, some of the best you know versatile type of running backs are at the list of biggest yards after the catch plus leaders last year but the guy at the top of the list i think may be a surprise to you is miles gaskin presumably back for the Dolphins, but a player that's not even going in the top 20 among running backs in ADP right now. And so Derek, I didn't know if you had any perspective on Gaskin, where if you think that he really is this type of like dual threat 
every down capable back, then I think he's really being undergrafted right now and could be a useful player for fantasy this year. You know, he's in a weird spot where I think he kind of does cross the threshold for being a guy who can be a little bit of a three down player. I think especially with, you know, the way he runs, I don't know if he's particularly explosive, but he does a really good job of, of staying low, um, you know, finding the right holes that he's getting through that, that Miami offensive line wasn't particularly great. So the fact that he was able to consistently, yeah. um, I think he was like above, you know, like a 52% success rate, which with that offensive line, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. And that um, offensive line's getting better. So right. Help and and it, it should be getting better. So that might even bode well for him there. Um, the problem is I'm not entirely sure he's a guy who can be like a, a workhorse. If that's, if, if, not that there's very many of them left in the NFL, but I don't know if he's ever going to quite be that guy. So that would be the only concern to me. But I think if you're imagining a guy who can, you know, should be on the field for all three downs and should still be their primary back, even if he's not a guy who's going to get 300, 350, you know, carries mm-hmm. a year, I think he's in a pretty good spot. Yeah. So I think there, there's really, there's three things that you need to be like a bell cow type of back, which is mm-hmm. the most valuable from a fantasy perspective. You need that versatility to catch passes. It seems like mm-hmm. Gaskin may have that. You need the ability to pass protect. Don't know what your thoughts are there. And you need the ability to stay healthy, which by and large isn't super predicted, like easy to predict. But size, I think, can be a big component there. Like right. which of which of two and three are you more worried about with Gaskin or are both really a big problem here? Um, I would say probably his his size, which is yeah. I think why I don't think he's a guy who can consistently be, you know, your workhorse. Um, he's 200 pounds, so it's not like he's the smallest running back in the league, but you know, I think we yes, see a lot of these other, small. right. I mean, a lot of these other guys who are like bell cows are closer to like 210, 215, 220. If you're Derrick Henry, you're, you know, 300 pounds. <laughs> yeah, but even, so like Alvin Kamara is, I think the, the prototype of this type of player that people right. think is small, but he's like 220 mm-hmm. pounds. Like he's, right. he's, not, he's, he's not a small big. guy. Yeah, right. he's big. He, he is. Um, and, and so I think that's a good point is that even these guys who we think are smaller because they're obviously shorter, aren't necessarily like tiny. They're, they're yeah. thick for, for their build. And that's not necessarily the case with Gaskin, which is kind of why I worry about him being a guy who's going to take, you know, too many carries. So more on the hilarious side of things, but on the other end of this yards after cast plus list, Kenyon Drake, negative 1.41 yak plus last year, second worst among running backs with 30 plus targets. I got a kick out of that when I noticed it because ostensibly John Gruden brought Drake in to be sort of the receiving option to pair with, uh, with Josh Jacobs. So like he would be the cream hunt to Josh Jacobs, Nick Chubb. Are we sure that that's a good fit? Is like, is this a, a really bad role for Drake, or is, or is Gruden maybe just lying to either us or, or to himself about what Drake can provide this team, or how this is going to be split up among the among the backs? So, Drake was not very good at, at, at pass catching last year, but I think the caveat to that might be that, like, because Arizona's passing game was so like. I mean, it was just so dry, and a lot of what they did was like these really cheap, you know, underneath passes that pretty much every defense knew was coming. And it was really just a matter of like, how quick could they swarm to get there? And if they knew it was coming as much as it was, it was pretty easy to do that. Even if you weren't the best defense, I think that obviously is going to hurt running backs unless you are just the best of the best, like Alvin Kamara, where you can just make anybody miss Drake, I think can make people miss and he can be a good pass catcher. And he has been before. It's just that he wasn't a guy who was transcendent enough to overcome that kind of situation. I do think that there is a world where with the Raiders, because I think John Gruden is a, a pretty good play caller, a pretty good offensive scheme guy, maybe not, you know, quite in the McVay tier or whatever, but I think he's generally pretty good. Yeah. I think there is a world where Drake could get back to being a, a fairly valuable pass catcher, even if he's not, 
you know, like I said, you know, Alvin Kamara's here or whatever. Okay, so that's really interesting because it does seem like scheme has a lot to do with a running back's receiving success, like beyond having the hands and, and the illusiveness right. and such. And I know that you brought you wrote the the Broncos chapter in the Football Outsiders Almanac, so I'll, I'll ask you it this way: like Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon have neither one performed well from a receiving efficiency perspective the last couple of years in Denver. And they couldn't really be any more opposite as players. And I've gotten to the point where I'm wondering whether that's just kind of the, the, the nature of that offense from their perspective. And is, is that kind of an analogy that you would see here? I think that's also partly a product of like the lock, just not being a guy who's consistently going to be able to, you know, get one to two to three to check down on time. I think okay. that's just not. And time so a lot of times yeah. if he is getting to the check down, it's going to be late. And that's that, you know, player who's, playing the flat is already buzzed down and it's already like right in the, in the running back's lap, that sort of thing. So I think that was probably more the problem for those players um, than them just being like outright terrible pass catchers. Well, then let me ask you about Kyler Murray too. Like I'm workshopping a take that Murray like isn't great, but he's unstoppable. So like, it doesn't really <laughs> matter what you're doing defensively. He's going to get what he's going to get, but it's kind of all on him, whether he's making great plays or making mistakes or whatever. Like is is he the type of quarterback that is going to kind of work through those progressions and stuff and 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 get the ball accurately in a place where a running back can excel after the catch? I mean, I think he can be. It's just the problem is, like I said, I think Cliff Cliff Kingsbury's offense is just so their passing game is so unimaginative. Yeah, and it's so it's just I think manipulating space the way that he wants to to get those quick yards after catch opportunities in the one to five yard area in the screen game. I think with the wider field and the different dimensions in the college game, it's a little bit easier to do that than it is in the NFL when, um, you know, when the hashes are a little bit different and obviously every NFL player that you're going against is pretty damn fast. Um, And so I think to me, the issue more with Murray in in that regard is just that the scheme doesn't give his, him as many options as I think he is probably Mm -hmm. capable of. So hopefully at some point, I, I think we get to see Murray in a different offense and, I think he probably can take that step. But like I said, with if Cliff is there, unless he takes this magical step, unless he had this, you know, journey this year where he opens up the playbook, I think it's probably not going to happen this year. Yeah. Okay. Getting back on, on track with some of these receiver type discussions and shifting to wide receiver here. Something interesting. I thought Adam Thielen, who is bigger than you probably think he is, but not a Julio Jones type of physical specimen, obviously. 52.6% of the Vikings end zone targets last season and scored 76.5% of their touchdowns on passes that were thrown into the end zone. Like Justin Jefferson, I think is a breakout star, but Thielen has really been the major red zone option for this team. No one else was over 41.7% of end zone target percentage for their team last year. So Derek, do you think that Thielen or, or really do any receivers have sort of an end zone skill? Clearly Thielen, it's not size related, right? But like, what is it that makes him such an effective touchdown score? Or is this something that fantasy players should be very worried about as like a, an unsustainable outlier type of performance. I mean, the performance to that level has to come down to, to that at some point, I would think um, okay. he's probably yeah. not going to be that productive that long, but I, I would say that I do think Thielen because he has such a good feel for space. And I, I think what also helps him in the red zone is that like, because all those windows are so tight, you're often asking your quarterback to throw you know, not directly in the player's chest. You might have to throw it a little bit high. You might have to throw it at a guy's knee so he can go down and get it away from a defender who's already tight to him because the red zone is just condensed. I think Thielen, the way that his, he's so flexible and, and so good at tracking the ball in the air that he's actually really good at a lot of those things. And that helps him be good when, when the field is a little bit tighter like that. 
Um, whereas like, if you look at a guy like Julio Jones, who is obviously Julio is a much better player overall, but yes. Julio can kind of struggle when you get closer to the end zone, because I, I don't think that he has that natural ability to, to get low and settle that way um, in those tighter spaces. He's really more of a guy who wants to have that open field and he's going to create separation for himself. Whereas, you know, when there's not as much space to separate in, that can be a little bit trickier for him. So I think that that's hmm. why that works the way it does. That's interesting. I've always wondered this because like Julio has been a consistent underachiever from a touchdown perspective touchdown mm-hmm. expectations perspective based on where he's received his targets. Mm-hmm. And I've always sort of internalized that Julio, it's like, he's got the the size and leaping ability of like a Kenny Galladay to, to kind of win those, those contested mm-hmm. catch situations, but then like kind of couples that with elite speed and great route running. It's kind of like mm-hmm. an unfair combination. And I was always like, why doesn't he have more success? But it, it almost seems like there may be like an instinctual component with a, the way that the field gets compressed near the red zone. That's just like not kind of playing to his mental strengths of the position. I don't know. That's, that's really interesting. And I think it's also like, if you're going to be a guy who is just like a pure ball winner, like on the outside in the red zone, I I think, you know, there's not very many wide receivers bigger than Julio Jones, but I think you do have to be really in that top, top percent of bigger guys like a Mike Evans or something, or even just straight up like a tight end to be that like kind Jimmy of like, type. Of right. Guy, right? Yeah. Exactly. You have to really be massive to be like a, just a pure ball winner like that. Hmm, that's interesting. All right. We're going to close this down with a couple of discussions about third down target leaders from last year. So Philip, if you can put that graphic up, there's not going to be a ton of surprises on this list, which is kind of why I'm calling it out. We've got, Guys like DeAndre Hopkins, Juju Smith-Schuster, Keenan Allen, Allen Robinson, Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs. These guys were leaders from a receiving perspective, no matter how you slice it. But I was really interested to see that Russell Gage was up near the top of this list with 42 third down targets last year. That's the same as Robinson. That's one more than Adams and Diggs. Kind of a shocking development. And we've talked a lot about, you know, the Falcons losing Julio Jones and what that's going to mean. And I think a lot of those discussions have been centered on top five rookie Kyle Pitts and what his year one like plan is going to be when tight ends tend to struggle in year one, how he may be different. But Derek, do you think that we've been overlooking Gage here as a player with a fantasy potential to break out? Or has this really been more like a result of circumstances where the Falcons were trailing a lot, a lot of their receivers were in and out of the lineup last year, and Gage was just sort of the guy that was there? So I think it could be, it could have been a product of circumstances, but the thing is like, He's going to get that again this year um, yeah. because they obviously yeah. don't have Julio Jones. Ridley is is the number one receiver, but really after Russell Gage, they don't have anybody. They have, you know, on the roster now, they have Christian Blake, who's not very good. They drafted <laughs> Frank Aaron's Darby. favorite, Olamide Zacchaeus. He brings it up <laughs> yeah. every show. I'm like, why? Why are you talking about like, him? <laughs> Zacchaeus is a fun player, but like, is he going to do anything past like six yards? Probably not. Whereas like Gage can. Um, and I think it also helps that like, you know, Ridley is, is Ridley can play in the slot, but Ridley is really more of an outside guy. And Russell Gage took a lot more of his snaps um, mm. from the slot, which I think, which I think it, it makes like, he has like this very clear role on the team. Um, and so to me, I think it's not so much that Gage is like this fantastic player. I think he is a solid number three um, overall option for the Falcons, but it's just like who after him is really supposed to be taking his targets anyway. Like they're going to target Ridley. They're going to target Pitts. The only other guy you can maybe see taking targets from him is like Hayden Hurst, but Hayden Hurst is really only going to be like an underneath option, which is not Mm -hmm. necessarily what Gage is going to be providing in the same way. So I think it's just hard to imagine like who else on the roster is supposed to be taking opportunities from him. 
So it's interesting because, again, with Arthur Smith coming in as the new head coach, it does seem like there could be a pretty big sea change in how they play offense. Mm-hmm. And just kind of what I remember from his days with the Titans, it did seem like the number two receiver there, uh, be that normally Corey Davis or whoever, maybe had a little bit more primarily of a blocking role. And I'm wondering if you kind of expect something similar with the Falcons this year, where like you'll have Calvin Ridley to be the primary target. Pitts obviously is an incredible target too, but like, is this second receiver, whoever it is really not going to be a major fantasy option because he's going to have kind of different responsibilities and a play action and, and run centered offense. You know, I, I actually kind of expect the Arthur Smith offense to not necessarily look the way that it did in Tennessee, just because oh, I don't okay. think it can with this, um, you know, with the way that this roster constructed one, they don't have a Derrick Henry. Um, uh, Mike Davis, my yeah. guy. <laughs> Mike Davis be careful is what you say right now. <laughs> uh, Mike Davis is good and he probably can be productive, but he's not quite, you know, best running back in the league material. Uh, I, um, I dispute you, but please continue. <laughs> um, and I also don't think Kyle Pitts and like Johnny Smith are similar players at all. I, I think they're very different in what you're going to want to ask from them. Like Johnny Smith is very much a guy who you, kind of just wanted a lining like in the slaughter from tight end and just running a lot of like crossers and really getting him moving in space. Whereas Pitts, I mean, Pitts, you can do anything with, you could legitimately line them up at X. And I think a lot of their offense is going to more hinge on them being able to do that sort of stuff. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the offense is going to look exactly what it did in Tennessee. And I think that being the case, if that is the case, which I expect it to be, I think that probably opens up a little bit more opportunity for Gage to not have to be, pigeonholed into that into that old you know Tennessee offense so Gage doesn't weigh a lot but is he like a quick twitch type of slot guy or is he more like a slender speedy guy like what exactly is his skill set to me he's a little bit more of someone who's going to like help you stretch the field um and and that sort of thing I don't think he's going to be you know the Mm. the Wes Welker in the one to five yard area where he's, he's suddenly open on every whip route that he's running I don't think he's necessarily that I think he's a little bit more guy who you want to get out into space, get him running at full speed, that sort of thing. Interesting. One of the reasons I brought that up is continuing down that list of third down target leaders, we have Deontay Johnson, Travis Kelsey, Cooper Cup. So like, obviously these are not all the same type of player, but like bringing in somebody like Cup who gets open very quickly seems like a natural third down fit. But the next player I think is extremely interesting on this list is CeeDee Lamb with 38 third down targets last year, top 10 in the league despite being a rookie, despite the other uh, difficulties the Cowboys had once they lost their quarterback last year. And it makes me wonder, Derek, do you think that the fantasy community is kind of sleeping on what CD lamb could bring in his second season? You know, Justin Jefferson, he kind of soaks up a lot of oxygen is one of the most successful rookie seasons ever for a receiver, but lamb, it seems like he, we may be sleeping on the fact that he could be tracking to be like an all time type of receiver too. Right. It's like, do you think he's has that kind of potential? Right. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, not to take anything away from Justin Jefferson. He was fantastic, legitimately one of the best receivers in the league as a rookie. But it's like if Dak Prescott had played a full season, we probably are saying a lot of the same things about C.D. Lamb. And we have to remember, it's not like Justin Jefferson instantly did that. Like Justin Jefferson didn't even play for the first couple of weeks, really, before he kind of blossomed into this thing. So I think there's absolutely a world where Dak Prescott plays the full year. And C.D. Lamb just like continually gets better over the year and, and has one of the best rookie seasons that we've ever seen. So I think his, I think he is such a good player. He was a really good prospect coming out of college, obviously. And I think him being what he was, even with all of their quarterback turmoil, I think getting Dak Prescott back, even if he's only 90% right away, yeah. I, I think, you know, kind of like you're mentioning, C.D. Lamb is probably going to be pretty dang good, um, you know, assuming Dak just doesn't get hurt again. 
is he already the Cowboys number one receiving choice ahead of Amari Cooper ahead of, I mean, they've got some pretty talented guys out there. I think so. I, and the thing is, it's, it kind of depends how you want to frame it because to me, it, it's not necessarily that he might be outright better than Amari Cooper right now. It's just that what they provide is a little bit different. And I think C.D. Lamb slots in a little bit more to like what you imagine is like the true X role where he's your, you know, he's your ISO guy. He's not the guy you're moving around the formation as much. Um, He's the guy who you want to line up on outside. He's going to run your slants. He's going to run a lot of your go balls. He's the guy you want to get the ball into his hands to run into space, that sort of thing. Whereas like, I think Amari Cooper is a little bit, uh, is a little bit more of a guy who you kind of want to be sifting through zones and you want to get him, um, you know, you, you kind of want plays, um, I, I don't know, where he's not the ISO guy that you're throwing yeah. to. Not that he can't get open, obviously, but I think C.D. Lamb is a little bit more of a, a guy who's your true ball winner, um, whereas Amari Cooper is like the ultimate, um, like, complementary piece where he kind of unlocks a lot of different things. Well, Derek, that was tremendous insights, especially for a math nerd like me that doesn't really have the <laughs> scouting background to understand these things. Uh, as we wrap up, I don't, I don't remember if we've mentioned on the show, but you're going to be my regular co-host for the Tuesday waiver wire edition of the Twitch during the regular season. So that'll be good. We'll have, you know, my more mathy take and then Derek can tell me all the ways I'm wrong, especially about <laughs> rookie and year two quarterbacks, which I definitely need, but uh, excited for that, Derek. And also what else do you have coming up uh, in August for football outsiders or anywhere else you have work going on? Um, I mean, first of all, I'm excited to, to, you know, have the the show that we're going to do every week. I'm really hyped for that. I haven't had a show that I've done, you know, every week in a long time. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to get back into it. Um, And, you know, I guessed it on the show plenty of times before. So I'm very excited to to have that a thing that we're going to do all the time. Um, In terms of stuff coming in August, I mean, just the the regular film room stuff that I'm going to have for football outsiders whether or not Game Pass is going to have the film up uh, <laughs> early yeah. in the season this is, is kind of good. a question. Not a good situation right now. <laughs> right. Um, hopefully it's there by the time I need to write those. So. Mm. All right. Well, fingers crossed from that perspective. So again, once the regular season starts, Football Outsiders will be doing Twitch all five days at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as the time comes. But in the interim, on Thursdays on Twitch at 1 p.m., check out the Football Outsiders Radio Hour with Aaron Schatz and Mike Tanier. Check me out on Tuesdays all August as well. You can check us out both on Twitch, twitch.tv slash FB Outsiders. You can also check us out on the uh, Football Outsiders podcast network on your podcast app of choosing. And really, guys, I, I know it, it's not always, it doesn't translate from, from a podcast perspective, especially, but check out these new FO Plus research tools. You can do a lot of really cool stuff. You can bridge years. You can do splits, just really great stuff. And it's very inexpensive to get FO Plus. You get all of that, plus things like, the Kubiak preseason projections, which I'm updating all the time. You can get your Jacob Beeson projections there, all of the hot stuff off the presses. So check all of that out. And then please, yeah, stick with us uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, the rest of August. Thanks so much for joining. And we will look forward to talking to you next time. And thanks again, Derek.